World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Today, because uh, it's the end of the semester, I'm sitting here resplendent in my crimson, but actually sort of a bright pink gown, academic gown, with my uh, puffy little hat that goes with it, uh, preparing in just an hour for the department's graduation ceremony for the fall 2006 graduates. Since this is internet radio, you can't see me, and I haven't posted a picture, but uh, go to the ECU History Department website and Oh, I don't even think my picture's there with the gown on, but it's quite a sight, believe me, and it gives me a chance to remind everyone once again, hey, I went to Harvard. Always welcome the opportunity to do that. But enough about that. Uh, a quick legal disclaimer, even though ECU graduates people whose grades I have just submitted, they are not responsible for anything I say or vice versa. And with that, uh, we move on to our topic today. Uh, our guest is Dr. Brian C. Steele Wills from the University of Virginia at Wise. Brian, are you there? I'm here. Brian, how are you doing? Well, I'm not. I'm not wearing pink, so I don't know if that's good or bad. But uh, but we just got through exams, so we're the same way. We are at the end of a semester here at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. Now, I'm curious about your institution there. Here at ECU, we are technically part of the University of North Carolina system, but Chapel Hill and ECU are, are not uh, related by blood. Uh, ECU had its independent start and was absorbed by the system. Is, is your college part of UVA? or We are the only branch of the University of Virginia not located in Charlottesville, so we are a part. We have always been a part. Uh, when the college underwent a name change a few years ago from Clinch Valley College, uh, people forgot that the backside of that title was of the University of Virginia. So we've always been from 1954 a part of the University of Virginia. Uh, but uh, the college is very independent and wise, and uh, there are connections, but uh, but uh, there are also some ways that we're very independent. And you're located in the, the western corner of the state, is that right? Yeah, southwestern corner, about three hours southwest of Roanoke. Yeah, that I. I'm always amused by the, the trivia point that uh, you can be in Virginia and be west of Detroit, Michigan, where I grew up. In, in fact, that's sort of what they say about Wise. Now, I haven't actually uh, pulled out a map and a, and a ruler to make sure that that's accurate, but that's what they say about Wise, that it's uh, uh, essentially west of Detroit, and it's uh, closer to five other state capitals than its own. Well, that that uh, could be a blessing, that, that isolation <laughs> from the state capital. Well, I'm glad you could join us today. You and I last talked, I think, uh, in Kentucky. We were on a trip with Ed Bars, the uh, the great battlefield leader, a few years ago, and uh, have, haven't linked up since. But I'm, I'm glad we can do this today. Uh, tell me a little bit about what what got you interested in the Civil War. What, what is your background? Well, I grew up on a farm in southeastern Virginia, in Suffolk, Virginia, and uh, not too far, in fact. Uh, I don't guess it's uh, privileged information to say that uh, when I was at the University of Richmond and uh, uh, I was uh, an undergraduate there, one of the uh, people that I would get on road trips was uh, a person that I went to visit at uh, 
East Carolina University. So I've been in your neck of the woods quite a few times as well, even as a younger man. But uh, I grew up on a farm. My mother was a fourth-grade teacher. She's since retired. And um, she made sure that we had history books and that uh, we were interested in history from almost the very beginning. Uh, she would take a, a fourth-grade trip every year to some historic site, usually Jamestown, Williamsburg, or Yorktown. But uh, I developed also a very strong interest in the Civil War, particularly, of course, Virginia's part in the Civil War. And uh, my father was a walking horse man, and when he came to uh, uh one, one day when he came home, he brought a magazine, a walking horse journal, and had a small article about Abel Strait's raid that Nathan Bedford Forrest ran down in North Alabama. And uh, I read that story, and I became fascinated. I'd never heard of Forrest before, and I was a teenager, a young early teen, and uh, I just was fascinated by him. I ended up going to the library and getting books, and so I got interested in Forrest because of my father, the author of the article, in what was known as the Walking Horse Journal was Bob Lomack. Bob has taught for many years at Middle Tennessee State University, and uh, I've since had the chance to get to know and work with Bob, a wonderful man. And uh, I told him that he was my inspiration, and he smiled. But uh, uh, Forrest was uh, always a fascinating character. I don't think you can study or read or think about Bedford Forrest without it being interesting and fascinating. Well, I think that's right. Um, before I go too far in that direction, uh, for those of our listeners, including myself, who don't fully know, uh, what is a walking horse? Well, a walking horse is more than just the name implies. It's a special kind of breed of horse. Uh, there are different types. There are show walking horses and pleasure walking horses. And Pleasure walking horses were used as a uh, an animal oftentimes on plantations because they have a very easy gait and a uh, very comfortable ride, a larger horse. It's uh, very comfortable to sit. Uh, but uh, the um, uh, big show horses, uh, you may have seen those or heard about those, uh, the ones that do a far more demonstrable type of gait that I, I can't, uh, I don't enjoy and I can't do. I, it's, it's something my father was a, a, a walking horse trainer and rider and show showman, and uh, he loved it. But uh, I liked getting on uh, the more pleasure-oriented horse and riding around the farm. That was what I enjoyed. Uh, so uh, so these horses do more than walk. They can uh, oh, they, do they, a they variety do of gates. different gates, yeah. But that, that is what they're known for. Yeah. So, so you had uh, horses uh, in your background growing up. That's right. Uh, so cavalry sort of comes naturally, although uh, I was not the one who did most of that type of work. I did the other less glamorous work. As I was growing up, if you're not from a farm or around horses, you won't know what I'm referring to, and, <laughs> and uh, I don't know how to put it politely for a uh, radio audience. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> I think we'll use the imagination. You can probably imagine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, you uh, then you took your interest in forest. Uh, at some point, you went on to graduate school and, and worked with some well-known people. Uh, is that right? That's correct. I went to the University of Richmond as an undergraduate, and then I went to the University of Georgia for both my M.A. and Ph.D., and I worked under Emory Thomas there. And, uh, of course, Emory was the uh, biographer of, of uh, uh, Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart. He was working on Stewart while I was there and uh, and then started up with Lee. And, of course, has since uh, done additional work, but I guess his, his earliest 
uh, most famous work, uh, sort of that seminal work that he did, was The Confederacy as a Revolutionary Experience. And I read that in my Civil War course in Richmond. And I thought, you know, this is a kind of interesting fellow I'd like to uh, try to work with. And, of course, I didn't realize then how important that can be, that you go to uh, sit uh, at the feet of someone like an Emory Thomas or, you know, a McPherson or many other of the other names you could name that all of us have studied under. Uh, it's just such an important part of, uh, of your ability to develop uh, as a scholar and an academic. Boy, that, that is really true. People... You know, I'll have students ask me, where should I go to graduate school? And, and the first question is, well, what do you want to do? And who is there? Who does that kind of work? Right, right. Uh, that, that's who you, who you work with, who your mentor is, matters it, more. It's huge that. because I, I know you'll, you'll know, we'll all know people that have inspired us or that have uh, taught us. And, and uh, I sort of I joke that in my lineage I go back through Emory Thomas to Frank Vanderver. Frank was his major professor. So I say that Frank was my grandfather. In academic, I, I, in academic circles. I've I, I done the same with uh, David Donald and James Randall as, as my academic grandfather. And of course, uh, I read Donald and Randall in school, so you know we, we, we very much have some connections there as well. Absolutely. Now, d mentioning Donald and Randall reminds uh, us, of course, of Abraham Lincoln, who they wrote so much about. And I, I, as I read uh, uh, A Battle from the Start, your your landmark biography of, of Forrest, I, I was struck by this thought that when you read about Lincoln's youth, uh, and, and we talk about Lincoln on the show a, a fair amount, so the listeners are familiar with the story, certainly, that he grows up, uh, Abraham Lincoln, on the frontier in a log cabin, uh, not a lot of formal education, unlike uh, many of the other boys there, he chooses not to, uh, uh, to to drink a lot of alcohol. Uh, he, he lives in a violent environment where people are always hunting animals, uh, shooting each other, getting in fights or wrestling matches. As a young man, he goes down to New Orleans, sees large-scale slavery there, uh, ends up going to live on his own, uh, uh, sets out uh, in business, and uh, has a brief experience going off to war, but it's kind of a farce. Nothing really becomes of it. And in all these things, uh, what else? He loses a parent at an early age, loses a sibling at an early age. All these things about Abraham Lincoln are exactly the same for Nathan Bedford Forrest. That's absolutely correct. And Forrest uh, and Lincoln, of course, Shelby Foote both got some praise and criticism for making the comment that he thought that uh, the... Civil War produced two authentic geniuses, and one was Abraham Lincoln, the other was Forrest, and uh, I think the comparisons certainly make sense, and their background certainly makes sense. Forrest only had six months of formal education. He once said that he never saw a pen that he didn't think of a snake. Uh, growing up on a farm and looking where I walked to avoid water moccasins, I understand that uh, uh, how he felt about snakes. But uh, but Forrest was very much in that profile that you just described. We could, uh, you know, just plug in slightly different place names and different uh, experiences, but uh, very similar. Yeah, you, you take out New Salem and replace with uh, Hernando, Mississippi, and right. it's the same experience for a young man on his own. But, of course, uh, the difference comes to a fairly abrupt end. Lincoln goes on to... Uh, 
first of all, to immerse himself in education and to uh, largely reject the frontier ethos of honor and violence. He does get challenged to a duel in 1842, and he he essentially accepts the challenge. It's only headed off at the last minute. He would have fought with James Shields, who would later become a, a general in the war. Uh, but but Lincoln gets away from that. He, in, in the rest of his life, he's embarrassed by that duel he almost fought. Uh, and, of course, most famously, Lincoln opposes slavery from an early age. Forrest, in contrast, goes on to embrace uh, frontier violence and slavery and uh, reject education. So, uh, what, Well, what, that's, that is true. Now, I wouldn't say it would that. be a mistake to call Forrest, for instance, an ignorant man because mm-hmm. uh, he was very much self-taught, even though he wasn't formally educated. Uh, he, did, uh, he did work to improve himself in that respect. Uh, for him, slavery was a practical matter. It was the easiest way to make money from a background that had no money or very little money, and and I think he saw that as his way to establish himself. Uh, he was not troubled with the moral dilemmas that uh, that I'm sure Mr. Lincoln was troubled with in, in dealing with that institution. He saw it far more from practical, from a practical standpoint, um, and uh, saw it as an opportunity to make the most money, the easiest way, the quickest way, and. Um, again, you know, they do diverge because of that, and they diverge uh, because of other things. But interestingly enough, uh, Forrest was also noted in his dealings, you know, to be honest. Uh, he was noted in his dealings to be forthright. Now, forthrightness for Forrest could be problematic. If you step the wrong way with him, uh, forthrightness might get you in trouble. But uh, he also learned early uh, uh to use that violence as a tool, and I mean not just the use of violence itself, but the threat of the use of violence. And and uh, we may have an opportunity to talk about how he applied that in war as well. But uh, Forrest learned early on that you get people to do what you want if they think that they might come to harm if they don't. And, uh, you know, again, you call that a bully or you can call that anything you want to in terms of of uh, labels, but uh, but he understood that as a as a personality trait for most people, uh, they're going to uh, they're going to step aside or step back from a type A, a strong type A kind of personality. Well, that's true. You think uh, Lincoln, when he was a young man, got himself appointed the the local postmaster to help uh, uh, make money and, and show the respect of his neighbors and and. Forrest got himself appointed the county coroner. Right. Uh, no mistake there. Uh, Forrest was was involved in killing uh, at a fairly early age. Well, of course, in that respect, coroner was really for collecting fees. True. And, and I wouldn't want to turn Forrest down if he came knocking on the door for a fee that I owed the county. So, so I think it was again part of the, you know, the name suggests that he that he's a killer and. And I think that can be carried too far. Jim McPherson's called Forrest the killing machine, and I think that dismisses him and, and in fact, uh, uh, allows us not to fully understand his personality or the background from which he comes. Well, one thing that that occasionally is pointed out with Civil War studies in general is how much more familiar Americans were with death in that era. The life expectancy was lower, and, and death was more... Uh, frequently experienced than than it is for most of us today, and you point out in your book that that Forrest's uncle was killed, uh, a friend of his was killed, uh, both violently while he was a young man. That that 
putting Forrest's own uh, personality aside, he certainly lived in a very violent environment. That's absolutely true. Uh, but then again, and, and you know, you take Forrest with with all of his elements of his personality. He had a volatile temper. He had uh, occasion where when uh, uh, he lost control of himself, uh, he would express himself in violent with through violent means. And so again, you know, there there are a variety of ways that one can handle uh, those circumstances. And Forrest uh, was prone to either turn to violence or threaten violence again to uh, get people to do what he wanted or to accomplish what he was trying to accomplish. Let me throw one more Lincoln uh, comparison at you. There's a famous photograph of Lincoln, the one taken by Alexander Hessler, I think in 1857, uh, before he grew his beard, a profile shot, very striking uh, young Lincoln, and his hair is all messed up. And the story is that he, when he was posing for it, the photographer tried to comb his hair, but every time he stepped back to the camera, Lincoln would run his fingers through and get it back the way it was, because that's how he looked. And this that Lincoln's inattention to his hair and his clothing was, was, was well known. He was always kind of careless in appearance. Forrest, in contrast, you point out, was very neat uh, to a fault. And yet, as you point out, he had this hot temper he could hardly control. How do you see a connection between those two? Well, I think you've already touched on it when you talked about the notion of honor. Uh, someone who was very, uh, uh, very aware of how he presented himself in one sense, uh, how he dressed, how he looked, but in another sense, how he responded to anything he perceived to be a threat, a challenge, an insult, uh, um, any kind of uh, issue that would require him to respond, he, he would respond, I think, out of the same reservoir of, of uh, personality and reservoir of, of uh, act, activity. You know, he was a man of action. There's no question about that. And, uh, and so, again, if he, if he perceived there to be some kind of dangerous threat, challenge, uh, that's when you'd see the darker side of Forrest emerge. And uh, and oftentimes the results he got would have encouraged him in the future to do it again because he got what the results that he wanted. Well, nothing succeeds like excess in some cases. <laughs> um, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back and we'll talk about Forrest in battle. We'll talk about some of his campaigns and uh, get more into the history of this, this truly remarkable uh, uh, character, one you cannot avoid if you want to know anything about the Civil War. We're talking today with Brian Steele Wills, biographer of Nathan Bedford Forrest, author of other books on the Civil War. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. 